Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Loadbox, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms, or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy. Joey Sturgis and Joel Wanasek are not with us today. Uh, Joey is at the APMA Awards representing JSD. So he gave a, a talk today on some sort of mixing thing. He, we give lots of talks. It's hard to keep up with what's what. But he's over there. And uh, Joel is in Russia on his uh, two-month, uh, how they say in Europe, holiday. And uh, with me is Mr. Lasse Lamert, self-proclaimed emperor of LSD Studios in Lübeck, Germany. You may know him for his productions with Ailstorm, Glory Hammer, Inner Sanctum, and a bunch of other stuff. You might know him on YouTube for his uh, uh, guitar tone videos. He's a guitar player, is known for getting amazing guitar tones. And, uh, you know, side note, but not exactly a side note, is um, he also is a student of physics, which I think is interesting. So thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the kind yeah. words. Um, I'm glad you like my stuff. Oh, yeah. I love your stuff. You first sent me your stuff when I was doing a creative live mixing class. Yeah. And I was blown away. I mean, I had heard of you, and um, I guess I knew you through the internet. Kind of like, you know, you know a lot of people through the internet. and But I didn't know that you were actually really good and stuff. It kind of... It kind of blew my mind because, oh, you know, lots lots of people send you stuff and it's like, ah, cool. Yeah, often you don't even bother listening, really, because, well, you yeah. can't. <laughs> if, if you get sent so much stuff, really, you can't really listen to everything. That it's, you know, I, that bums me out sometimes because I get hit up literally a few hundred times a day yeah. by people. Like, and I want to listen to stuff, but uh, sometimes it's not even that I can't listen to it is that by the time i get online or something it's already like 50 their message is like 50 deep i don't even see it but you know i i have to reserve the majority of my listening time for the people who are paying for skype grits or who are part of our mixing communities and stuff like that because you know they're they're paying money to be a part of that and you know the, there's only so many hours in a day but I was in a good mood, and we were talking about something, and uh, you sent me stuff, and I was like, holy shit, this is good. So, yeah. Well, so happy to have you here, and um, I want to mainly talk about guitar tone, but I have a few general questions as well. We told our audience that you're coming on, and they submitted some questions, and oh, cool. a lot of questions, actually. They were super stoked. So we have a good amount of stuff to talk about, cool. but uh, you know, just on a in a more general sense, I read a quote about your place. It says, "With a facility capable of accommodations for up to ten persons in a huge garden, 
LSD Studios provides a true retreat for the recording artists where they are able to escape from the pressures of daily life and concentrate simply on making music and getting their very best performances on tape. And, yeah, that's obviously your quote, but how important is it for you to have a relaxed environment when working on music? Well, actually, it wasn't even my quote. It's just... It's um, not? No, it's uh, the guitarist of uh, Halcyon Way from Atlanta, I think. Oh, shit, um, okay. Hey, so that's a review. I obviously, I, I kind of liked that, and I just uh, used it for my homepage, I think. Oh, nice. That's that's a good that's a good review. Um, it's, it's very important, really, because, well, um, if, if the artist is not really feeling comfortable there's no way you're going to get a good performance and that's what really matters the performance you can reamp as as often as you want you're never, never going to get a great sound if, if the artist isn't feeling comfortable uh, especially for stuff like vocals where you really really hear a difference but guitars as well um, you often see this red light syndrome I'd, I'd call it where people just play it cleanly and flawlessly and as soon as you start recording they just uh, keep fucking up because they're nervous and everyone knows that I mean, I, myself I've got the same problem uh, to, to a certain degree at least but yeah I think it's really important for them to, to be relaxed and to be able to focus on the music you know I didn't realize how important setting the environment was I mean I always knew it was important and I always did this but I didn't just I didn't realize how crucial it is until my band recorded with Jason Sukoff in 2008 um, and I had been running a studio for like six years at that point so I already had clients and tried to set up a good environment and work with their psychology but I guess I was a little nervous about the recording because you know label budget and pressure and all that stuff and he's an incredible guitar player so you know he's he's intimidating when you're working on music like recording music uh well not 24 7 but like six or seven days a week um it's easy to forget that that it's quite a stressful situation for for a musician that's coming in to your place um because you're doing it every day they're doing it like a few weeks every year maybe or every other year or whatever so it's yeah it's definitely going to be totally. more stressful th for them so it's, it's good to just uh take a step back every now and then and just uh try to get that outside view well yeah i mean i had worked on the songs for like five months six months and then it was like okay after all this work here it is it's the moment it's almost like the same pressure of a live show but even worse i think but the thing is that he's such a great producer that he got me feeling great And he inspired a level of confidence I didn't know I had. And I ended up performing way above what I thought I was capable of. And that just that just showed me, first of all, everybody's scared to go in the studio. And number two, a great producer knows how to overcome that and help empower the, the musician. And I guess experiencing it blew my mind. I think that is actually the best compliment that someone can give you as a producer. It's not like the snare sounds great or the guitar sounds great. It's when the band leaves and, and tells you that you got the best possible performance out of them and the best possible uh, version of the song they came into the studio with. That's pretty much the best they can say, I think. I, I've definitely, when people have told me that, I've uh, definitely, that's made me feel great. But I definitely think that that's kind of the mark of a great producer. Well, one of the marks. Some of the other ones are clearly 
well, how does it sound at the end? Because <laughs> so that should you be know. a gift, really. I mean, uh, if you yeah, you're it. right. But you know what, though, you're right. I think that some of that stuff should be a given. Like uh, your technical skills are a given, and when I guess at the highest levels, that is assumed. But I think that for some guys starting out, like if they're listening to this podcast where we're talking about setting an environment, they might not realize that uh, if your stuff sounds like shit, it doesn't matter how good the environment is. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah I mean, that part's that part's just assumed. And OK, so speaking of the stuff that uh, should be assumed, uh, this is something I'm just curious about. And uh, given your background in physics uh, and music, do you find yourself applying science of sound knowledge to your production work? Not really. I think it helped a lot when I built the space here in um, 2007, I think it was, because it could save a lot of money just by doing all the like RT60 and remote calculations myself and uh, like treating the rooms and all that stuff. Uh, because of my background in physics and also used to teach acoustics at uh, McNally Smith College of Music. So I, I was quite confident doing all the like calculations for the room treatment. That's where it definitely helped. I was about to say, that sounds like a yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not when it comes to mixing though. Because like, oh, okay. I, I purely mix by, not even by ear, but by feeling, I'd say. Yeah. I kind of make... I, I mix by colors even like um, this thing where I want something to sound purple and that's when I choose a different amp or I want it to sound more green like some people uh, have colors for like days of the week or for numbers and that sounds for me do you actually like physically see the color yes yeah there's a condition for that or, it, or something something like that right yeah something like that not not very many people have it so okay, so like uh, you, if you if you go to a concert, what what, and you close your eyes, what are you seeing? Like, say you go see Slayer or something. Slayer would be more red, red brownish. Now, is that because of the video for Raining Blood, or because that's what it sounds like? Uh, no, definitely not. No, I think it's more the the graininess, uh, the the mid range of the tone. Like typic typically, martial tones are like brownish for, for me while the, the uh, 5150 for example is more blue interesting so when you're mixing basically and you're hearing things it it's more about like how bright or dark those colors are and then you just apply sound to them exactly yes like for example when i um i know the band once i talked to the band before obviously what kind of sound they're going for because uh, you can't really do the I want the snare from that album and the guitars of that album that doesn't work so uh, you have to have a vision before you even start recording and placing the first microphone the colors come into play when like the, the drums for example uh, should be cracky and, and, and biting rather than like lush and, and big and then I go for a brighter as in color bright guitar tone as well so okay so here's a question then um, what if you pick drums that sound one color and an amp that sounds another like where does that's not gonna work <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> well that's the case like when for example you got a very lush thick dense guitar sound which would be like a dark blue or purple uh, for me and then you got a like pantera like um snare drum all you're gonna hear is the the very attack so it's gonna sound very thin so i gotta mm -hmm. pick a guitar tone uh that's kind of like molded around the drum tone 
to have some space so you get some of the sustain of the already thinner sounding snare you know that's kind of mind-blowing because uh, i guess i don't i don't see it that way so meaning not that i disagree but i just don't see the colors so it's kind of kind of incredible were you always like this yes uh my head was always a bit weird i think <laughs> well i mean i feel like it's a it's the same type of thing as perfect pitch like either you're born with this ability or you're not and it is what it is right i guess yes and it can also be a curse like perfect pitch as well um perfect pitch can be terrible like when you're recording yeah I'm, I'm doing a lot of uh, like folk metal stuff for example where i have like real strings um at least real violins and, and stuff like that um, that have to fit with uh, fretted instruments and so obviously um. it's always going to be a bit difficult because the proper good violinist uh is, is trying to intonate well the proper way and then it's going to clash with the fretted instruments and i've got one particular violinist uh, who's who's got perfect pitch and, and it's it's terrible for her to play with guitars because it always sounds off and wrong and off pitch yeah i uh my dad's got perfect pitch and i feel like that's prevented him from being able to like any sort of modern music or very little modern music because if things are just slightly off that's what he hears yeah. he can't he can't handle it so even great stuff that maybe were recorded in the era before autotune like i don't know beatles vocals harmonies yeah. or something you know it's just stuff that's classic but just slightly off that kind of stuff drives him insane and forget live performances from any you know any modern artists like he he just can't can't take that sort of thing so luckily you don't have perfect pitch as well nope. right no i, I, could I actually have to fight sometimes to hear the pitch properly on bass guitar for example i usually when i record bass guitar i just taught the mid-range real heavy so i hear it clashing with the guitars more easily um, stuff like that little tricks interesting so your eq does it correspond does bright and dark on the eq spectrum correspond to bright and dark in on the color no spectrum no not really i think it's more um like uh, corresponding to graininess probably and how smooth the sound is so when it's when it's grainier um it's it's a bit brighter and if it's like really smooth and and, and lush sounding it's it's probably probably darker interesting so like say you hear a kurt Ballou production um, um are, yeah. are you familiar with his yes, work yeah yeah Okay, like, have you heard the latest Nails record, which is musically... I've heard a song, yeah. Um, yeah, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like an explosion of, you know, everything. <laughs> he's, he's um, I really like his work for, it's very unique, I think, because he's got a um, nail to, to um, like, walk this line between too dirty and messy and mm -hmm. fucking awesome and in your face. And he's always just on the fucking awesome in your face side of that line. Yep. It's perfect balance, really. I, I couldn't do that. I've tried it a couple of times and, and uh, it's difficult for me to just let it go then because uh, I always feel like, oh, that's too messy. But his stuff isn't messy. It's just uh, energetic, really. And that's his aesthetic. And, but the thing is, like, how would, you, how, would those, how would that show up in your head? I'm curious because musically, like if I was to describe it musically, like the words would be grainy right because it's yeah. but from what you're saying mm. that wouldn't fit with your grainy image no not really no grainy to me is more like uh yeah well raspy sandy and, and it doesn't really sound 
like raspy to me it's it's too the attack of the guitars for example is too i don't want to say blurred but it, it's not like the tightest quick attack uh when you play palm mutes for example so it's, it's a bit more smeared and that that, that smeared uh sound kind of makes it sound darker for me you know the this just fascinates me on a just on a purely just human curiosity level because there's certain things like you know, hearing about people's dreams is usually a very boring thing, <laughs> even though people love talking about their dreams. But the thing that that blows my mind about it is realizing that you'll never know what somebody means yeah. when they're describing that because it's totally 100% in their head. And I feel like I, like I try to imagine what you say you're imagining, but I'm sure there's absolutely no way I can possibly understand it. No, I don't think there's a way I could really dis describe, like make you feel it. Um, it's just uh, probably not going to happen. No, no, <laughs> it's I, not. I wouldn't even know how to how to word it really. No, I just I just think it's uh, it's interesting to me. Like I also think about this with animals as well. Like how does uh, my my dog compute? The things I tell it for is it in language? Is it feeling it? Like I don't know. These things blow my mind, and then I try to think about other things. Those like, thoughts can drive you crazy, though. Even if you just go down yeah. to like a, uh, what color is a strawberry? Well, it's red, and, and then you think about like does the other person see red the same way you do see red, or is it more like you're green maybe? And there's no way to tell really because you can't really look inside his head, can you? Yeah, you make your head explode. <laughs> When you actually realize, I realized at a really young age that um, you're actually literally completely disconnected from the rest of the world. And uh, every, well, yeah, I think I was just the idea. I think I was 13 or 14 when I realized that since everything is processed in your head, you're not actually nothing actually exists for you outside of your head. That concept just blew my mind. Exactly. It's so heavily it filtered that it's not really. <laughs> much yeah. to do with uh, like what's really going on anymore yeah and speaking of that like back to music i think it's actually really phenomenal if you can figure out how to interpret what somebody else means like for instance when they're talking about what they want musically what their goals are the ability to understand what they mean uh, i think is also really quite fascinating definitely yeah. and also a good thing to for a producer to have really yeah i mean is that something that you feel like you had to develop or is it just another thing you just understood what what people meant? I've never, never really thought about that, to be honest. Uh, I think I kind of... Uh, when I started producing, I probably just kind of knew and understood, but I have no idea how that started because I was on like internet forums a lot and so you have to describe stuff uh, using words. And so there are some words that just keep coming up, like lush and biting and... Uh, like thick, dense, and dark, and all that stuff. So I guess it's uh, like some of it becomes common vocabulary, and some is just while well, learning the musician or learning, learning to know the artist or whatever. Yeah, I, I feel like um, we actually have a podcast episode called uh, Musical Translator. It's our second episode, and it's all about that, that as a producer, that's your main job really, is learning how to translate people's uh, ambitions and words into into music that sounds great so let's let's switch gears and talk about a uh, guitar i was noticing in one of the photos of your studio you've got some killer gear kemper axe effects a diesel bogner ubershaw driftwood etc yeah I'm, I'm a nerd really dude you've got a you've got an arsenal like what are your go-to's like in 
like as even out of that whole you know wide variety do you find yourself going back to the same things or different every time i try to um not repeat myself when it comes to sounds and tones so i'm not using templates a lot uh definitely not like mix uh like eq templates or anything and i try to not gravitate towards the same guitar chain all the time but there's some stuff that just obviously just so just works for example the uh, 5150 which is like it yes yeah for a reason especially when you got um some amps are very sensitive to the right hand or the picking hand of the guitarist like the rectifier which could sound just uh, can sound amazing and just perfect but you have to hit really hard and have to be yeah well you have to have the right uh, wrist for it really and the 5150 is a bit more forgiving it kind of sounds great with like every player so that's one that definitely is being used quite often in the studio my soldano on the super lead overdrive is by far the most often used amp for leads and solos here because i just love how creamy it sounds see there's another word creamy i've got an avenger creamy to means no 6k <laughs> kind of yeah yes <laughs> i guess yeah creamy to me means uh getting rid of that sandy raspy graininess i guess which is somewhere in the 6k area yeah or rolling off the tone knob but still i feel like whenever like buttery or creamy whenever someone's like i want my leaves more buttery i cut 6k and they're like oh that's what i meant yeah i think it works quite well or just uh, it's like it's switching from the bridge pickup to the next neck pickup or yep. something like that yeah for sure i've got so i've got an uh, avenger i love that amp it's fantastic it's essentially the hot rod with a, a factory installed depth mod i think uh, I used to have a few hot rods as well, the uh, hot rod 50 and the hot rod 100 plus, which is like the two channel version, essentially uh, an SLO. And the hot rod 50, just the one channel amp is, I think the best uh, Soldano I had for rhythms. So that's essentially the uh, Avenger. My only gripe with it, and it is, it's a great amp. I love it, but no effects loop. And that, that bummed me out because that for touring reasons, back when I would tour with amps, like that invalidated me being able to take it with me because I needed, I needed effects. You don't really want the Soldano effects loop anyway, to be honest. No, <laughs> nah, nah. It's um line <laughs> level, so you can't use a lot of uh, pedals, and it's before the EQ section of the amp, so it's 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 entirely weird, really, and it doesn't work for a lot of stuff. It's it's still a like a relic from uh, when everyone was using huge racks with a uh, tons of nineteen inch gear in it. Um, mm, yeah. Okay. It's also sucking a lot of tone. I actually installed a. You can get it as a factory mod, uh, like a loop bypass switch. If you guys want to check out my YouTube channel, it's uh, just search for Lamad uh, Soldano loop bypass. You're gonna find it. There's a little comparison video with the loop in and the loop out, and it's much more in your face with a loop bypassed. So I'm using it like that all the time, really. You know, that's interesting. One of my. Uh I don't know. Let me restart that sentence. One of the people that I respect the most in the world of audio um, is a guy named Josh Florian. And uh, he's got a company called JCF Audio. And he's a genius. The units are super expensive. I mean, expensive as fuck. And he builds converters and summing boxes and will build gigantic custom boards for people. And he's got no interest in mass market. It's all like, you know, it's kind of like if Ferraris were handmade to order kind of thing like some are and he always told me that the reason that he doesn't even put power buttons on his stuff 
like no lights, no power buttons. It and usually his stuff only does one thing. Like if he's got A to D, it doesn't do D to A, for instance. Is because the best gear, he says, the utmost quality is when there's nothing nothing extra in there. Everything you add that takes electricity will sacrifice something. And so I think about that with the effects loop. It's like, well, uh, maybe they just wanted the Avenger to kick ass. (laughs) Maybe they realized that their effects loop sucked the tone out and they just wanted an amp that sounded incredible. I definitely agree. You don't need all that stuff, really. I mean, um, like, I'm not a fan of uh, three-channel amps. Uh, Like, I do like three-channel amps, but I'm just using, like, one channel usually. Because while I got the luxury, I, I got the amps. I, I can choose my um, clean channel from another amp and the crunch channel from yet another amp. So obviously when you're a touring artist and you're not using the camp or the axe, you do need a, a flexible, versatile amp. But in the studio, I, I just it, it feels weird to me to use the clean channel from the same amp as the distortion channel, even if it's both great. It just uh, something feels weird about, me, about that to me. Oh, so it's not that you think that three-channel amps suck. It's just that you want a completely new sound. Yeah, it just feels like a compromise, even if it isn't. And that's the sort of thing that just, uh, it's going to bug me later. You know, I agree with you. Like, and this is, as a rule, I've always tracked leads and cleans with different amps than the rhythms. Always. I would never do the the same thing. And it was the same amp, because I always... I've always come from the idea that the more different you can make things, the easier it's going to be to mix. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so different guitars, different head, different cabinets, everything. Yep. Especially cabinets. I think cabinets are much more oh, yeah. important than amps, really. Cabinets um, essentially like give you the EQ curve, while amps are just more, while well, the dynamics change and... Different amps obviously sound different, but I think the difference in, in cabs is much bigger than in amps. That's what people well, often underestimate. Well, I think that this is why you can get excellent tones from using a really good amp sim with a cabinet. Yeah. You can get really, really good tones or uh, using a, uh, a real head, but with an amazingly recorded IR, you can also get really incredible yeah. tones. It's tougher, though, but it can be done. But I feel like that makes all the difference in the world is uh, if you're flipping and not to take this to irs instead of cabs but like just for our listeners who never have mic'd a cab if you notice when you're cycling through irs no matter what you're using if it's a 5150 through a hot plate or um or pod farm or whatever when you're cycling through irs you don't even need to change the settings on the amp and the ir itself can either make the tone lock into place and sound incredible or totally destroy it. Yep. And the same with same with the miking of the cab. Exactly. It's not even the speaker. It's not even that uh, the T seventy five sounds so different from the V thirty. Obviously, it does. But um, often in forums you read, "Oh, just get a, a vintage thirty equipped cabinet. It doesn't even matter if it's like a one twelve or four by twelve because you're just uh, close miking anyways." And of course, it matters. A, yeah, it's a huge difference. Even the like if the if the dimensions are similar, it's still a huge difference. Sorry for plugging my YouTube channel again, but I did no, a comparison for it. that uh, exact thing. Just um, I compared like thirty five or whatever all my amps 
through the same cab and then another series so i just used the same amp and just uh used different cabs with the same marking though exact same position and pretty much all of them are vintage 30 412s well you guys can just give that a listen and then check it out and it's amazing how different uh the the, the cabs sound from one another it's just just the the palette of tone the variety you get uh it's just mind-blowing so i don't often don't well i kind of understand it but uh like when people are collecting amps and they don't care about the cab collecting amps is just sexier than collecting like a box of wood but it's true if, if, if you're into tone and if you're into getting great tones just uh don't underestimate the the effect and the influence of the cabinet you know um andy sneep um bring him up because i feel like that's how me and you started talking was our shared uh admiration for him but uh what he told me like 10 years ago or something was that the trick was that the cab has to be run loud enough to where it starts becoming a resonator basically like the wood starts shaking and becomes a part of the sound and that's why the 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 cabinet itself how it's constructed and what type of wood and how much space there is in there makes all the difference in the world as long as you're running it hot enough to where it actually engages the the entire shell of the cabinet yes and that's why i think um power brakes and all that stuff doesn't really work uh, the way you think it should or the way you want it to work because um what you're hearing or what you're looking for isn't as much the saturation and the uh, overdriving the, the power amp of the amplifier it's it's more the driving the speakers into saturation and getting the uh, the thump and the influence of, of the cabinet so just by lowering the wattage and just uh decreasing the volume you might uh, still get the like the saturation from the power amp uh, by using a hot plate or whatever it's called the power brake but you're not going to get the influence of the cab as much no i agree i i don't think that people should use those um there was a method that andrew wade was showing about how to make irs with it and that's one thing but i think if you're actually trying to record a cabinet you know playing a guitar through a head through a cabinet a uh, hot plate is not the way to go exactly agreed or an iso cab uh, i've never really had any good experiences using an iso cab they always sound like uh, congested and small to me you know um keith marrow he uh he was showing me an ISO cab that he got to sound pretty damn good, but he modified the shit out of it. I've heard good things about the Randall one, which is essentially like a 412 uh, size. Well, that's the one he okay, has. Cool. He took out everything on the inside. Like, he had all this padding, I believe. He took it all out and did all... He modified it. I mean, still, I would prefer, and I know that he prefers not using that, but I think he had to use it before he moved to his house. And so he got it as good as he possibly could and it sounds better than any iso cab i've ever heard besides that but also you know that's another thing is that i don't know i i don't know tell me if you agree with me um whenever people tell me that they're trying to get really good at guitar tone but they can only work in an apartment and so they but they hate amp sims so they have like a an iso cab or a hot plate and can only turn it down really quiet my my advice to them is well get over it and get good with amp sims because you're not going to get a good tone out of a cabinet that way like that's just not not the way to do it so 
get good with an amp sim, and then once you have the ability to actually run the stuff loud, then start working with cabs. That's what I would have said a few years back. Uh, now I would just recommend they get the uh, like a torpedo or something. Those two notes oh, products. Oh yeah. They're okay, fucking yeah. amazing. Um, I'm using them all the time now. Um, I'm I'm not using the the stock cabinets like like the factory stuff. It's not bad at all. It's definitely usable. It's it's great really. It's just um, I hate using other people's tones. So I'm just creating my own IRs, uh, using them every now and then. Definitely for like when I'm tracking guitars, I'm often not micing uh, micing a cab, but I'm using a a real amp because. To some guitarists, it feels differently the way it bounces and interacts, and then run that into the torpedo. Sometimes I don't even reamp later. Sometimes I reamp, but uh, the torpedo is just—it's amazing. I'm using my own IRs, but they're def definitely like great, great, great uh, factory installed uh, impulses that you can use. I completely agree with you about the torpedo. I guess if they can afford it, oh, yeah, it's a price. Then get it. Yes, it is a pricey unit, but. Yeah, that's a great way to go for sure. Um, I guess I guess more what I mean is um, don't go those other methods. No, that's of compromising. Yeah. yeah, using a torpedo is not a compromise. Uh, that's a great unit. There are also great like software uh, solutions, like uh, the the Casrock stuff, for example, is amazing. The Thermionic or what is it called? Thermionic. Yeah. yeah, they've got great stuff. Well, the JST amp I've heard is good. So they're, yeah, it's good stuff out there. It's not like the the old Cubase four M simulation anymore. Plus, it's it's mainly in the IRs anyways. And and what like a few years back, and when when you used like Pod or plugins, um, the the cab models he used were essentially just like a, uh, like a frequency corrected. This is well, uh, like a EQ curve put on on, <laughs> on the on, on the amp simulation. And that always sounded shitty. And the, the stock cabs in the XFX1 or the pod still sound shitty. But if you're using an IR, it's a whole different game. It's just, it's amazing how close you get. I completely agree. I feel like that's like the, the secret to to uh, getting the most out of amp sims is the IR. And uh, speaking of your YouTube channel, what inspired you to do that? You've, you do a ton of uh, compare and contrast videos for mics, guitar amps. Like what got you into showcasing that stuff purely because i'm a nerd and um i like comparing stuff I'm, I'm really not doing it for the way it started out i didn't do it for anyone else i just uh whenever i uh, did it like a shootout i always wanted to have it in a like a blind test scenario so i could actually for myself pick what i liked and what i didn't like and then be able to go back to that later like a few weeks later or months or whatever and i figured some other people might be interested in that too and i just started uploading that to forums first and at some point i needed to archive the stuff and then i just kept deleting it off my hard drive so i just uh, uploaded it to youtube and apparently people seem to like it so yeah. I'm, yeah i'm still doing that and i'm still not really doing it as much for for the other people i'm just doing it for myself still because i want to compare stuff and since i'm doing it anyway i might just uh, as well as well, well upload it to for other people to hear i mean Fair enough. That's, that's also why I'm not putting that much effort into the whole video production. I would like my videos to be as awesome looking as, uh, I don't know, uh, Olas, for example, or Keith Merrows. It's just, uh, I can't, I can't be arsed at this point because it's just a lot of work. I mean, that's that's their thing, though. That's their thing. Like, Vic, Keith went to school for video. Yeah. I know Ola didn't. He just uh, 
taught himself to do it, and I could do it. It's not like I'm probably not too stupid to learn it. It's just uh, I'm sure you're not. Since I'm really just doing it for myself, I don't I don't see the the point um, in really putting that much effort. I'm in sure it. you're not too stupid to Thanks. learn it. <laughs> I will agree with you on that. No, but I, I understand. I mean, that's their career, so it's like if their videos have to look incredible, or else they're in trouble, in my opinion. But still, I still think that for what you're doing, uh, the videos are fine. They get the point across and people like them. So It's, it's probably a smaller audience because you really get all the nerds and all the freaks who just want to hear something. It might be a bit more boring to, to people that aren't that deep into all the details of recording or amps or whatever microphones. Well, so speaking of freaks, I've got a bunch of questions here from the audience who have watched your videos. So... Um, yeah. Let me uh, let me ask you some questions then from them. So uh, Rodney, sorry, dude, I'm not going to even try your last name. Rodney is asking, and hey, by the way, if you feel like these questions are hard to answer, in that they're too general or something like that, just say just say it. Yeah, like, cool. Don't don't yeah, don't feel like you have to give a dumb answer to a dumb question or. All right. Or something. And sometimes guys don't know that they're asking something that's way too general. Yeah, but often those um, supposedly dumb questions uh, are being asked by a lot of people. So it's maybe even even good to just uh, address that and uh, tell them why it's hard to answer. You know what? Let me rephrase. Guys, I don't actually mean dumb questions. Uh, I just... I, <laughs> I did like little air quotes here. Just, you probably couldn't see it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to quote, quote unquote, dumb questions. What I actually mean is just questions that are way... Like, like for instance, if it was like, how do you mix a song? Or how do you mix vocals? It's like, well... Mm. Cool. Uh, so, okay, so Ronnie's asking them, where should the guitar sit EQ-wise? Obvious answer would be in the mid-range, I guess. But uh, mid-range is like a very wide uh, term. You go from like, well, <laughs> almost all the musical range is mid-range. Um, yeah, it really depends on the mix and depends on the style of music as well. If you, if you have a lot of uh, like brass instruments and, and folk instruments and stuff like that, um, you obviously need to create some space uh, and the guitars have to be more in the background and a bit more on the lower register because you don't want to, like brass for example, which is a lot in the, uh, very present in the high mids, you can't have guitars fight brass and cymbals and vocals all in the same range. So I try to create some space there and just uh, put them a little bit lower maybe. Um, same if you got like a lot of instruments that are in the low mid-range, some uh, like folk again for like folky percussion instruments or uh, droney stuff you need to create some space there especially the the range at 250 hertz and 400 is always difficult for me because that's where everything gets muddy but if you suck out too much there you're going to get a like an anemic thin sounding mix so you have to be very careful with that when you when you start recording so yeah no easy answer just uh you have to listen to the other instruments, to the style of music, to the mix, and just find a space for them. I think it's important to note that uh, guitar, especially distorted guitar, will swallow everything. It is broadband as fuck. And um, it, if you're not careful, it will swallow every other instrument in the mix. What definitely helps is um, to tie back to the using different cabs. Like when you use the same cab for all the rhythm guitars, which I often do, but um, the danger is that those little tiny fizzy spikes, they just add up. 
and can create a whole lot of fizzy mess in the mix. And if you just use a different guitar cap, for example, for like the other side or for the second pair of guitars, you don't get this buildup on fizzy frequencies because those little spikes are going to be somewhere else, not the same spot. So that, of course, already helps to create some space for symbols and stuff. But then there's a trade-off also, though, I think, when you start to layer multiple rhythm sounds. It's harder to get the big, consistent, you know... Yes, yeah. You don't get this uh, big, lush wall of sound as easily, but you get more um, width in your mix. Mm -hmm. And also depends on if you're you're doing it left-right differently or like the main stereo pair, which I usually pan 100%. And then a different amp or cab or whatever for the second pair, which is panned slightly in. So you don't go 100% with all four? No. You, and I, you actually do four guitars? Um, do, yeah, it depends on the style. If I get the time and uh, if it's like more modern metal, core-ish stuff or stuff like that, I, I do like to use four guitars, yeah. For thrash metal and, and stuff that has a lot of other instruments going on, uh, some folk metal stuff, I just do two guitars makes sense so same guy rodney uh is asking do you have a go-to microphone position i'm starting with the old sneep position really like when i'm using an sm57 it's it's usually in front of a a v30 and i'm just starting at the seam where the dust cap meets the cone because that's a good starting point i will echo that that's also where i start sometimes that's all you need to do yeah really yeah and that's actually um I'm being asked so often, how do you get guitar tones? How do you do this? And then usually they just tell me I've got a 57 and a 421 and a Royer or whatever. And well, my maybe that's going to be not a question later, but I'm going to answer that now. My answer really is, well, if you can't get a proper guitar tone with a 57, don't even bother adding another mic. Because, yep. yeah, that's that's all you should need. And then you might add something to, well, to kind of EQ it by phase cancelling stuff or to just to add another flavor. But if it's not there, if it's not great with a, just a 57 in front of a V30, well, work on that first. Yeah, there's been plenty of times where that initial setup has been great and there's been no need to do anything else. And... There's been times where it hasn't been enough, you know, it's, it goes both ways, but point being that that's, uh, that's even when it doesn't work, it's generally not going to be terrible. And if you can't get that to work within, I feel like 15 minutes, at least sound decent, you've got something else that's the problem. Yep. And sometimes I almost feel like a fraud. I I feel bad when people ask me, how do you get guitar tones? And I just say, well, uh, I don't really know. There's no magic wizardry to it i just throw a 57 in front of a v30 and that's it pretty much often not always but uh, a lot of the times that's just it enough of the times yeah. well that's the thing is uh you know when we talk about tone is in the hands and all that other shit that people are sick of hearing but that's the truth yeah it's all these other things that that are i guess not as sexy as like cool mic positions and stuff makes such a difference that uh, it's a, if you don't have that stuff right, no matter how you mic the cabinet, it's going to sound like shit. Exactly. Now, I know guys who will tweak guitar tone for days, but m- just about everyone I know gets a good initial tone very quickly. I generally don't re- really use EQ at all on guitars. I do a like 60 hertz a high pass and a 12k-ish low pass, and every now and then I just cut ever so slightly around like 3 or 3.3k 3. 3 
but just like a very narrow, maybe 1.2 dB cut and that's it. It's because you get the, the tone right on the way in. Yeah, and often it sounds a bit fizzy that way. And I feel like if I solo it, I want to cut a bit more in the high mid range. But in the mix, it then just works and I, I don't bother doing it. Yeah, it's it's that's I think that's another important note um, is uh, especially if you're getting into the habit of um, cutting frequencies, which uh, we, sh we show people how to do that a lot on guitars painful stuff like in four or 3.2 yeah. like whatever the thing is if you do that in solo too much you're going to hear way more frequencies you need to cut than you actually need to cut exactly and you end up just turning guitars too loud in the mix then so that you can still hear them and then everything is just muddy yeah the guitars sound like a neutered mush <laughs> so you know those spiky frequencies those harsh frequencies are your friend you just have to keep them under control. Exactly. Um, listen to Ernie Sneep's stuff, for example. If, uh, um, he used to post some like cap comparisons or tip screamer comparisons on his forum like a, like 10 years back or 8 years back. If you can't find those, just give them a listen because the guitar sound, if you just listen to them soloed, uh, people, if, if, if you didn't know it's Andy Sneep, a lot of people would say, well, that's fizzy and thin and scratchy and sounds like shit. But, well, I think you can't really argue with his results. And if you listen to his mixes, uh, it just fucking works. And it just, uh, sorry for swearing. <laughs> and it's just amazing. No, the you next... swear. You can fucking swear on this goddamn podcast. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that was honestly part of, I don't know if you're familiar with Nail the Mix. Um, it's the, the, the mixing service that we do. Uh, the reason we do that is because when I was starting to get decent at this i was lucky enough that i kind of met andy i bothered him all the time yes yeah, and here. uh back in like 2005 and and luckily enough when my band got signed he helped he reamped the record the our first record for us colin was that the, mixed hinderous? It. No. the hinderers yeah the hinderers. yeah colin mixed it but we had this situation where um we were in london and we needed guitar tone and it was a Sunday and you know, everything's closed because that's how things are. And we couldn't get an amp, nothing. And so we just asked Andy if he would do it and he did it, you know, he was just for free as well. I might add. So those of you guys who don't like doing shit for free, just keep in mind that, uh, everybody still does stuff for free and favors and that's the way of the world but yeah so he did all our guitars on the album didn't charge us anything sent it back and it's just amazing hearing what a, an actual tone from an actual guy sounds like there's there's stuff in there that an amateur will cut out you have to know exactly what to cut out and how much of it to cut out and not let yourself go too far. And that's true when it comes to a lot of stuff, for example, editing as well. I've asked him about uh, quantizing and editing bass and he said, well, I don't even bother. I'd like some movement in there, but he's got the ear to judge and decide if it's annoying or not. So you yeah. really need to know where what's what's going to happen if you don't edit. If it's Is it tight enough or is it not tight enough? It's just going to be a mess in the end later in the low frequencies. And if, if, if you've got Andy's ears and experience, you can decide to not edit and let it just slide and have it a bit sloppy even if you want. And he was also mentored by Colin Richardson. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it goes, you know, and this is something I think I'm sure a lot of guys are going to be like, well... How did Andy get his ears? Or I don't have Colin Richardson to show me how to do it or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, but you live in an age where you have, 
you have us and you have the internet and you have you have nail the mix you have creative live you have all these things that we didn't have back in the day so we had to you know if someone got lucky they could have a a great mentor like colin plus sneep um he's still approaching stuff quite differently from colin oh yeah um like colin is doing a lot of eqing and and processing on guitars and his guitars sound amazing but sneep's while doing it quite differently and the way he started out was actually just uh putting a 57 on i don't even know what it was he didn't have a stand so he just used a a combo amp or a chair or something and just uh, put the SF57 on there and just moved it in front of the speaker. So he's well, a good combination of self-taught and being educated or helped out by Colin Richardson. I think that everybody who's good is kind of a little bit of, the, of both. Like you have to have the drive to figure it out for yourself, but typically there's someone who's further along who kind of like at the very least shows you what the standard is or yeah it definitely helps out you know what what's actually expected of you in the big leagues you know some stuff like that so all right another question from the same guy rodney we love you uh do you have a go-to microphone 57 um yep i'm yeah it's just same reason it just works um i do like to experiment and use different stuff especially when well, Andy's a mate of mine, and we talk every now and then about mics and guitar tones. Whenever he recommends something, I usually, uh, well, take his word for it and get the mic and try it myself. And most of the time, I'm happy with that. Um, for example, the AT250DE, it's like a dual element microphone. It's got a condenser element and a dynamic element in it. That works quite well. The PR30, it's a yeah another dynamic microphone doesn't work that well for me. I like it on floor toms, but not that much on guitars. And well, the usual stuff, the uh, 421 I use every now and then. The M201, which is a biodynamic mic, is like one of my favorites. Prefer to the 421 even. The biodynamic M160, it's a ribbon mic. I like that a lot. Even prefer it over my uh, Rylabs R121 because it's tighter. The Raya has got a lot of, has got more like proximity effect going on. The, the M160 is, is a bit tighter. But all those mics I usually don't use just by themselves. Usually it's it's the 57 in there and then one of the other mics blended in, except for the AT250DE, which uh, is like a dual element mic already. So I'm just using that by itself. All right, so um, question from Matisse. And again, I'm sorry, bro, I'm not gonna try your name. So when you work with so many different amps, with so many different characters. How do you come up with the tones you're gonna use? Do you start already in the mix and adjust until it sits, or do you start from scratch? Uh, it's different every time. Usually I start with, like when we're tracking guitars and I plan to reamp lighter, for whatever reason, um, I, I try to start with a guitar tone that the guitarist feels comfortable with. Um, that's especially when it comes to amount of gain, distortion. And I already have a rough idea where we're going, obviously, because, uh, well, you have to have an idea where you want to go when you start recording. So I'm kind of pushing them into that direction already. Um, so if I'm using the Kemper, for example, I'm probably going to be using a Kemper profile with uh, like a Mesa cab and a 57 or something like, well, something I could imagine would work later in the mix. So I've got a good starting point there. Then sometimes just for fun, sometimes because it's necessary when I reamp. Usually the band isn't around anymore, but when they're around, I go a bit further with that when I reamp just to 
have a huge blind test just to stack up like five or six amps and then three or four cabinets and just re-ambush short section double tracked and just go through them and just eliminate one after the other until we come up with a final tone yeah and if, if the band's in that's going to be a few more amps because it's fun for everyone involved if if i'm doing it myself i usually have a good idea already and i'm just trying two or three amps and i end up pretty quickly with the tone i want to i want to go with yeah so just uh to harp on the first thing you said about knowing where you're going uh we just released a blog a urm.academy slash blog and uh one written by joey sturges um is called five reasons you suck as a producer and one of them is you don't have a vision and it's because all great producers have a vision of how great and what direction the album or the song or whatever the EP are going to go in. You can't do anything without that. You're, if you don't have that, you you know, it's up to randomness where you end up. I agree. That's the most important thing because you're going to end up with, uh, like it's going to be sheer luck if you end up with a decent sounding mix because uh, you're going to have, let's say, four or five elements, guitars, bass and drums and vocals that are going to be fighting each other because they just don't fit together. Even if the Pantara drums sound great and the Inflames guitars sound great, if you have Inflames guitars with Pantara drums, it's just not going to work. So you have to yeah. have a vision. That that blog, by the way, it's just, uh, it kind of hit home, <laughs> and I, I agree with everything he says. Dude, you don't you don't suck as a producer. No, but I, I there's uh, um, you always have to sit back at some point and just uh, uh, take that outside perspective again. And a lot of those points, I often see sneaking in with myself so we have well, to we're all guilty we're all guilty of that stuff yeah so i have to consciously make a make an effort to uh, fight that sometimes it, well i think that um being great at something isn't an accident like it's you, you know you have to have as much as you have to have a vision for a great record you need to have a vision for greatness your own greatness and a lot of that requires contemplation and the, those things in that blog we actually brainstormed it a little. And I mean, those are things that no matter how good you are, if you're not careful, you're going to fall into those habits. You know, it's totally normal. You know, speaking of vision, it's totally normal for people to fall into a routine, for instance, and to do things out of habit rather than making a conscious decision of charting the course, you know, made X amount of records. It's really, really quick to mic things up this way, this way, this way, boom, 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 get it done, rather than really figuring out what the vision is for the end result and changing directions until you get there. It's a lot easier to do, you know, to go down road number one. And I know plenty of guys who are great who fall into those habits. So I, I can see how someone who is awesome would have that blog hit home because we're all human. Especially that um, bit about... Uh not appreciating the the client or the work. Um, it, it's easy, like when you when you're slaving away editing drums like five days in a row. It's it's easy to just start fucking hating it and, and complaining and be like, ah, oh, sh shitty drummer can't even fucking control his feet. <laughs> but yeah, that's just because. Well, if you do this right or if you're good at it, you're also a creative person. So you're probably not going to be the most organized, uh, rational-minded kind of guy. So you're always going to have like some sort of emotional involvement in it. And well, at least for me, it's, it's I oh, yeah, get, totally. to get into 
like complaining uh, quite too easily sometimes. That doesn't mean I don't appreciate the, the job or the client. It's just a, well, it's just what I do. I complain. <laughs> I honestly, man, I think that everybody does. It's a natural thing to do. So it's again, it's one of those things that it's important to just check yourself yeah. and uh, stop stop doing it. I think it's so normal. So here's a question from John. Do you use different string gauges for heavy guitar tones, leads, clean guitars? And if so, what gauges are your go-to? Well, personally, I just go with whatever feels comfortable for me. And I've got a rather controlled fretting hand, so I can go with light gauges. For like standard tuning, I'm using ninth, half step, step down, step down, tenth. And for C tuning, which is my main tuning, I'm using the Diodario EXL117, I think they're called. It's like the, the drop tuning ones. It's 11 through, is it 59 or 56? Something like that. But yeah, for, and then it depends again on, 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 on the scale of the guitar. If it's like a Fender scale, uh, I'll be using that. And if it's like a Gibson scale, uh, 24.75 or whatever that is, I'm going to be using a heavier gauge. And for guitarists, I'm recording, like if, if it's not myself, same thing. It's uh, Usually I just ask them to use whatever strings they're comfortable with. I then hope that it's Diodario, because in my opinion, they just last longer and sound better than... Like, whenever a string broke for me, it was an, an animal. I don't want to talk bad, bad about the company. <laughs> a lot of people like that. It's just personally no, for Di me... Diodario are the best. Yeah, I agreed. And I'm, same, for example, for the... Um, and when it comes to how long they last, people just recommend or use uh, like those coated strings. I don't even want to mention the brand name. I really hate them because they might work live, but in the studio, they just don't cut it for me because the high strings corrode anyways and the low strings, the, the, the coating just, especially if you're a fast, like thrashy player, you just rub it off and you've got this fuzzy stuff around your strings later that just fucks with the intonation. I agree. I, I hate those. I don't allow those. I order the strings for the people. That's what I prefer to do, but I talk to the bands first and just ask what kind of string gauge they like to use. And obviously if it's like a 9 through 42 on a Les Paul and they tune it down like three steps, I'm going to say, well, it's probably not going to cut it. <laughs> yeah, but when it comes to tone, it's it's obviously important. It does play a role, but it's it's more important when it comes to intonation. So you really have to uh, look at the guitarist, how's his fretting hand, and and often if if it's not a great guitarist, you they they have the fretting hand and the picking hand. They can't adjust the strength individually. They don't have it like disconnected. So when you ask them to fret lighter, they're also gonna like hit lighter at the same time. Yeah, you know, I I think that the whole thicker strings, thicker tone, is a little misleading, because if you put, use thicker strings and they can't play hard enough to activate those strings you actually get weaker tone yep and that's the point of diminishing returns really when uh, also for intonation when you when you got a, like a shorter scale guitar like a gibson scale and you use very thick strings obviously the string is a bit stiff where it, where it touches the bridge and the nut so it's not, it's not going to be oscillating right away at the uh, fulcrum at the point of contact there so you're going to have a bit of a stiff string and the thicker the string is the stiffer it is and the more intonation problems you might get so you have may have a more stable tuning when it comes to uh, like a strong or too strong fretting hand, but you also might run into intonation problems. So it's a bit of a trade-off there, and that becomes especially noticeable uh, with uh, bass. I think, like uh, the the difference in tone between thinner strings, medium thick strings, and and really thick oh, strings yeah. is just uh, insane. Bass strings make such a difference with tone; it's unbelievable. That's I spend. 
it, like I know what I like with guitar, but I'm more likely to, you know, if they say I want this brand of non-coded strings instead of this one, I'm much more likely to go with them on it than if they choose a different brand of bass strings than what I want. Yep. And I try to coax them into getting steel strings nowadays. Yep. There's another but, but, uh, comparison video on my YouTube channel again, sorry. <laughs> um, comparing the, the regular ones um, to steel strings. And both uh, same bass, guitar, and new strings. And with the steel strings, it just gets so much more depth. And the low end is uh, just punchy and in your face. And the high end is growly and, and, and biting. Whereas with a, what is it, like a nickel wound uh, string, you get more muffled, uh, like the low end is a bit round and, and uh, like rubbery in a way compared to the steel strings. Yeah, I like pro steels. Oh, they're fantastic. The Adari pro steels are my go-to strings on bass guitars. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing better for this genre, in my opinion. Agreed. Like, I'll fight people about that because that's that seriously, that's the one area with strings where I'm not going to back down because... I've also tested this stuff out. Like, I didn't make a comparison video, but did a bunch of comparison recordings, and the difference is, it's just troubling <laughs> at times. Yeah, also with uh, new and old strings. There was a discussion oh, going yeah. on, I think it was on uh, Joey's forum the other day, uh, about how old should strings be. And then most people are actually uh, saying that they like the strings to be a few hours old. Um, oh God. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. It's just, uh, if, if someone says new string, that means, well, you just put it on, right? If you put it on last night, it's not new anymore because no, you played it, on it and it's going to be corroding overnight. And new means you just put it on like within the last 10 minutes. Exactly. And I don't usually don't let them play between takes. I've got another uh, bass or guitar that is set up with the same strings so they can practice stuff. Same they have to practice a lot. And then I change bass strings after like, it depends on the guitar player and his, uh, how, how sweat is, but after like four hours, maybe I'm going to be changing the bass strings. Oh dude, I do it even, I'm even crazier than that. Usually if it's, if it's pro steels, I usually, well, what I'll do is I'll get twice as many low strings as everything else. Mm -hmm. And I'll usually change out the low string after an hour. And then the whole set. That makes sense. I should be doing that. Yeah, I always do that. I do that with guitar, too. I always, you know, we decide how many songs we're doing. And so I order 1.5 times the number of songs of full packs. And then I order two times the number of low strings. I like that idea. I have no idea why I didn't think of that myself, just replacing the low string. Because that's why I noticed it first. Um, and usually I notice it way before the band does. Well, obviously it's my job to listen for stuff like that. They shouldn't be focusing on that. But um, at some point you just notice that it's going to get duller and darker and, and muffled sounding. And mm -hmm. when I mention it, they're like, no, no, it sounds fine. It sounds like before. So then I just record a little bit of, of that and just put a new string on and then record the same bit. And then they have it like an A-B test and they can tell themselves pretty easily because it's, it's insane the, the, the difference the bass strings make. And that's one of my main problems with outside recordings. When I get stuff sent and, and the bass is, they complain that the bass is too soft in the mix later. My reply is usually, well, uh, I couldn't really get a great bass sound out of it because your strings were like ancient. Yeah, it's crazy how much of a difference it makes. So it's expensive too. So um, having an endorsement helps. Yeah, but if you if you're spending a couple of thousand euros on a production, like even if even if you if you've got someone who is fairly cheap, um, you're spending quite some money on a production. Yes. What's bass strings then? It's another like what what is a 
pack cost like 20 20 bucks something like that 25 i don't know so uh yeah it's, it's another hundred dollars a year or wherever you're from then uh, same for drum skins uh, at least uh have enough replacement skins for for the top of the drums especially for the snare and it's another yep. 80 dollars 100 dollars or whatever but you're spending thousands of dollars for a recording and just expect uh, good results and usually what helps is when i've got a i don't charge by the hour on a daily rate but whenever the drummer says he doesn't have money for new skins i just tell them i'm gonna charge by the hour for the time i'll be EQing your shitty drum tones to have enough attack so then that <laughs> usually ends up being more expensive than just getting a set of new uh, new new skins wow that's great <laughs> that's 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 awesome. I've never considered that. Um, so here's another question from John. Uh, when dialing in an amp tone on any head, do you reset the knobs or do you have a certain starting point no matter what and just adjust from there? No, I'd never reset the knobs. Because the, the amp, in my opinion, the settings don't even make a huge difference. Not as much as the, the cabinet or the miking, for example. And I know my amps inside out. I know the cabs inside out. I know exactly where I like the microphones. And I know the room inside out. Another overlooked uh, factor is the room, even with close miking. And I, I, maybe I did that in the beginning. But, but now I just I know the stuff inside out. So I just uh, use not necessarily, not necessarily a starting point, but... I know what I what I want to achieve, so I just uh, even I, I tweak the knobs before I even place through it, or before even reamping, before even reamp something. So I kind of know I'm going for a, like a thicker, denser, or in my terms, more purple than blue tone. I'm going to be raising the the mids on the fifty one fifty, going to be raising the treble a bit and backing off the presence, and then I reamp, and I'm usually already there, pretty much. But that's just experience and me being a freak, I guess. I have no idea. <laughs> So Amrish is asking, and hey Amrish, what are your thoughts on a compression on your guitar track slash bus? How much loudness do you feel you need to dial in from the compressor versus manipulating the source loudness before it gets there? I on guitar tracks or a mix? No, he he meant guitar or guitar bus. So do you even compress your guitars? No, well, I never used okay. to do that really. Um, I just started doing it every now and then. Actually, because of, uh, I think it was a Nail, Nail the Mix episode, I just uh, did this little L2 thing and, and liked it for that for that particular mix I, I worked dude, on. Dude, limiting guitars, dude, I, I got raised when I got raised to never compress or limit guitars, and uh, Joey and Joel taught me. Oh, L1, it was not L2, sorry. Yeah, L1, and man, it, it's it's a nice little trick. It's kind, it kind of does what I'm, I'm using this C4 a lot, uh, another mm -hmm. old Sneep trick, and it kind of does a similar thing. It kind of gets the the low end in check on like woofy palm mutes and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it, it just makes the guitar sound tighter. Not not even using it so much to control the dynamics because the heavily distorted guitar tone is pretty doesn't have that much dynamics left in it. The only thing that is bouncing around is the low mids uh, on, on palm mutes. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where well, like the C4 or an L1 or something like that can help. But usually I'm not really doing any... I'm, I'm ne never even using buses for my guitars. Like for little... For, for almost... I'm not using any buses for anything really. Like obviously aux buses and effects buses, but I'm not really using groups as such. Not even for drums. Everything is just going straight into the, the uh, mix output, into the main output. That's the way to do it in Pro Tools if you want to not have any issues. 
with a delay compensation. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's well. It's interesting because the Pro Tools guys that I learned from don't do that stuff either, and I don't know if they thought this through. But when I started trying to do a bunch of parallel this and auxes that, man, so many issues that you don't have in other DAWs. So I don't know if that if that style was you know developed as a response to that or not but um i think it's often not even needed and, and it's so easy to overdo things when you once you start working with buses you eq the individual mm -hmm. tracks and then you eq and compress the bus and often it's not needed you just do it like as a default there's something i have to put a compressor on it that that makes perfect sense and especially with drums i it rarely ever use parallel compression i just did it on two mixes just because i wanted to try it and liked it for those mixes But I'm only using it when the recording is shit or when it's programmed drums, it helps to get out a bit more sustain and stuff and helps to smoothen out the cymbals. But when it's like properly recorded drums, I never even use parallel compression on the drums. I feel like parallel is one of those things that if your stuff sounds like garbage, it's going to sound like garbage anyways. Yeah. Yep. So it's like if you want to add that extra 5% maybe that you feel it's missing and parallel is the way to go, cool. But It's not going to, you know, it's not going to take a shitty mix and make it good. No, it's for me, it's just a fix for problems. Folks, like I said, yes. uh, program drums that uh, don't sound coherent enough to me. Usually, even if you use the pseudo uh, room mics, they, they can like benefit from a parallel drum compression bus just to get more sustain and uh, more gel and glue. Yeah, totally. So. AJ Vienna is asking, whoa, haven't seen that name since the Sneet Forum days. Love the mixing guide. So you haven't been looking, AJ. So um, the question is, do you have an internal checklist that you go to when you're getting a tone? Like when someone asks you to reamp, what's your first rig to try? Depends. I usually ask them for references, not to copy the sound. Um, that's not going to be possible anyway. It's just to get an idea where they're coming from and what they want to have. Then I ask them to send me a... Uh, like if it's an outside job to send me a, like a backing bass and, and drums and stuff that I can that I so I got something I can fit the guitars in because it's not gonna help if the guitar sound tone sounds awesome by itself and then just it's not working in the mix so if possible I ask them to send me that yeah and then again I know my my amps inside out so when I know he's going for that kind of tone it's it's I'm pretty quick at finding the right amp and mic and, and, and cabinet for that, I think. And that's just experience, really. Yeah. Like we said before. So Eduardo is asking, well, honestly, you already answered this question. Um, so Elidor is asking, how do you go about blending different mics and do you prefer active versus passive pickups or is it just depending on the situation? Let's do the mic question first. Um, mics, I'm very careful about phase. So I do this old, I think it's the standard trick, just to put the amp in high gain mode. And so you get a nice like noise, white noise kind of sound coming through the speakers. Invert the phase on one of the mics and just, well, I first place the first mic to be perfect. That's my use of the 57. Like I said, if you don't get a great sound with just that, do something else, uh, start over, uh, use a different guitar player or whatever. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I get that right first, then I place the second mic, and then I flip the face on that one, and just first uh, you have to make make sure that you get the same level, so just that's pretty much the only time I observe the meters and Pro Tools to get the same peak level. Then I move the mic around to get the most possible cancellation, 
not around, not left, right, but uh, like uh, closer or further away from the speaker to get the most possible uh, cancellation. And then I flipped the face back and then you got the mics perfectly in phase. I might then check again, uh, like visually on the waveforms, but that's usually what I do. So then I got my main mic and just uh, like drive the other mic in until I like it. And that's where faders really help. You can do a lot of mixing with mouse and everything, but when it comes to blending two mics, you want to have a fader because uh, absolutely that way you can just move one mic down while you're turning the other one up, so you don't you're not going to get fooled by the increased volume or loudness. Yeah, I, I agree. So O'Shea Hill is asking, how do you tame the high-end fizz of your tones? Is there a specific place to low-pass, or is it more dependent on the cab type slash mic position? Cab, mic position, and amount of I don't care about fizz because it's going to work in the mix. There you go. We did kind of address that earlier. Yeah. So Nolan is asking, when stop reamping and say, okay, this tone is sick, I'll keep it in the mix, I spend too much time reamping over and over Hold on. Let me read this and try to understand it real quick because it's written kind of weird. While you do that, I'm just going to answer the other question that I uh, forgot to finish, the active oh, okay, versus cool. passive pickups. Oh, yeah. I'm an active guy, really. I prefer actives, but that's um, I think that's because I'm coming. I'm, I'm old. I'm 35 now, turning 36 uh, in September. So I grew up with all the thrashy stuff, like really fast, thrashy palm mutes. And you need absolute, like, tightness like fast tracking low end for that and a lot of passive pickups don't really do that for me they sound great for the chords and for the big wall of sound kind of stuff but when it comes to this machine gun like attack uh, nothing beats the the active piss pickups like the emg 81s and the fishman fluence which are amazing people hate them for being not that dynamic but well it's a metal mix you don't want them to be extremely dynamic necessarily because well you're going to fucking slap a tube scream on it to get that in check to low pass and high pass and uh, compress so that's where active pickup helps i'm not a not one of those uh, i hate passives they work for me too depending on the situation but personally with my style i prefer actives okay nolan is asking when do you stop reamping and say okay this tone is sick i'll keep it in the mix i spend too much time reamping over and over using a reference track every time and I get a good tone but I can't stop myself and say okay it's done commit commit as early as possible when I yep. um, when I blend mics for example I'm I'm committing as early as possible in the process um, I, mean, I guess you have to have some degree of self-confidence and experience to be able to do that but I think it's the way to go if, if the tone is there if it's right don't fuck with it we and um, we talk about this a lot too on this podcast and nail the mix and stuff and uh commit that's one of the most important things you can do to get better is to commit i know lots of guys do the opposite of commit they'll try to mix with like their drum instrument live all their synths live their amp sims live and they'll work on the same song for like a year and never commit anything it's like that's keeping you back the sooner you can commit the sooner you're going to get better because if you make a bad decision you're going to be committed to it and you'll never make that bad decision again. Yeah, and trust in your choices. If, if you think it's yep. right, it probably is right. And for example, MIDI instruments, I'm, uh, I'm never, as soon as I start a mix, I'm not going to have any uh, active MIDI instruments in the mix anymore. It's all going to be printed. Good. It, that's how it should be. I mean, unless you're, you know, an exception or something, kind of, like there's always an exception, but like, in general, you should just commit, commit, commit. Yeah. For example, now I'm just working on the uh, the new Power Quest stuff. It's a, like a power metal band from the UK. 
and um, they're using a lot of... I never would have guessed with that name. Yeah, right? <laughs> so they're using a lot of keyboards, and then when I send them the first draft mix, I, I still had, just to keep my options open, uh, the or the instruments active, because I was... They sent me what sounded a bit plasticky and fake, so I, uh, I used like real-sounding uh, instruments, especially for the strings. And like expected, it turns out they wanted to go for a more like that plasticky power metal sound. So I had to go back and, and choose a different sound. But that's for the first song. I just sent them the first song. Now everyone's happy. Now I'm just doing the same kind of thing for the other songs. So yeah, there are, are exceptions, but Cometa Soda is possible. And trust me, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, you, um, sorry, I just forgot your name, but you just said you're comparing it to reference mixes, which is always good, but don't compare guitars to guitars if, if the mix isn't similar. Yeah, that's, yeah, when you're doing a reference, when you're listening to a reference or A being, you shouldn't be listening for that. You should be going for a general balance yeah. level you know going for like the big picture like does my low is my low end as big as this one right or you're not like does my guitar tone match a guitar tone from a whole other production exactly it's never gonna work no definitely not um so sean McHenry's asking do you have any thoughts on randall heads yeah i like them definitely i've got some of the old stuff the v2 and the t2 heaven and hell the old gust g model and I actually like them a lot. I'm not one of those. Those are um, two preamps and, and solid-state power amps. And I'm not much of a purist when it comes to that. When it works and sounds great, it sounds great. And the new stuff, which was designed by Mike Fortin, is great as well. Because while well, Mike is a fucking wizard when it comes to amp circuits, I've got a few of his uh, modded marshals, and yeah, he's insane. Man, when my band first started touring, we toured with Goat Horror a lot, and they used Randall. Sammy used Randall heads and cabs. I don't know if he still does, but he had like the Pantera stuff. Yeah, man, it sounded incredible. Holy shit! Crowbar, same thing. They sound massive as fuck when you when yeah. you see them live. They use the old, uh, well, the old uh, RG one hundred, whatever it is, the old solid state heads. Mm-hmm. And damn, do they sound massive live? It just works for them. A lot of that's Sammy. Sammy's like a god of tone yeah so nick matsky is asking do you have a go-to brand of picks yes um i'm actually i'm very anal when it comes to little details like that um and the pick definitely does have an influence on tone so pick. yeah you have to kind of take that into consideration i used to use uh, stone picks because they just sounded amazing but they're so expensive and i'll lose them all the time and they're a bit tough to get used to and you have to have a perfect pick angle because if you angle them a bit too much you get the scratchy sound from the windings on, on the lower strings and uh, now i'm using the don petrucci uh jazz threes because they are the perfect size between the jazz three which are great for leads but not so great for rhythms for me at least because i kind of i keep touching the string with a with my index finger then and the big ones i don't like as much for leads so I'm using the Petrucci ones, and they're amazing. They're like sharp, pointy, and and right size, and, I've, and the material sounds good too. And when it comes to sound, I also like the the Altex ones. Those are like amber colored uh, Dunlop picks, and it's important uh, thick. I like thick. Picks. I love those. I actually like thinner picks for strumming. Parts. Yeah, well, for strumming, yes, you don't want to have the individual individual tick 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 going over the strings. Then you just want a more like a blur wall of sound, right? I used to play in a black metal band when I was like 18, 18 uh, 19, something like that. 
And I used really thin pick back then because it was just like strumming and, and fast shreddy chords. Yeah, it makes sense for that. So I'm going to combine these two questions into one because they kind of go together. This is by Martin and Derek. It's, could you describe your process of getting high quality DI tracks? Use a DI box or do you go direct into a pre and how much of a difference does that make? It definitely does make a difference. It doesn't or does? It does. It does make a difference. Yeah, I agree. And I've uh, done a lot of shootouts. Nowadays, I can't really be honest anymore because I just know which DI box works for me and which doesn't. It depends a bit on active and passive pickups as well. Actives aren't as picky. Um, it's also with like long cable leads and uh, actives are just much more forgiven when it comes to stuff like that. For bass guitar, I'm using a Bootsy Collins modded uh, BAE uh, MP1073 preamp, which is like a Neve flavor mic pre. And it's got a like the Bootsy Collins mod on the instrument input. Sounds massive. It's got like really, really uh, tight but huge low end. For guitars, I, I used to use the, uh, it's pretty much a standard, the Type 85 uh, Countryman. And I've now moved to the Two Notes Engineering uh, Torpedo Reload, which is now my uh, reamp box as well. I went from the first, I had the, the X amp uh, radio. Than the great little apps red eye, I think it was called, and now just mm-hmm. the the reload for everything. Interesting. I, I love the red eye. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I think it sounds better than the countryman. I agree. It's um, more headroom. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And last question. This is from Paul. And uh, what's your approach to creating Kemper profiles and cab IRs? Well, let's uh, let me just say we don't need to talk about that for thirty minutes. Like, all right, <laughs> because that that's kind of like a could teach a whole class on that get a great guitar tone uh, you have to like it in the room you have to like it, record it listen to it through the microphone if that's great you just want to get it into the camper so well camper push a button and it does the whole kind of thing and then refine <laughs> <Science>. it <laughs> and well refining is what where it's a bit more important obviously but i've got my my own little riff that i'm playing um for me it's important to have a lot of low-end content going into the amp when you refine it so a lot of slow deep palm mutes to get the low end right in the profile what about irs i just use blend ir from two notes it's a free software you can download off their page and it does everything automatically you don't get oh, it okay. in, in waveform then just in their uh t-u-u-c i don't know what the format is um, but i'm using it in my torpedo live anyway so uh i'm using that i did create some irs for the xfx and like other stuff which is wave and i just used the apple's um what's it called it's a, one of a, those uh, utilities in apple uh, on, on a mac it just comes with it i think or came or did it come with logic i have no idea ir watch i don't i don't know i don't know no, but yeah but just uh look it up it's 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 the apple one that's just uh comes with whatever software uh, i guess i could just check it out i think you use it to create impulses for uh, the space designer and that's what i used uh, fairly simple it just tells you what to do yeah and that's it boom dude thank you so much for uh talking with me about all this stuff and thanks for oh. sharing so much thank you for having me always happy to talk about gear and amps and rather difficult to to get me stop well, i think it's i've had a great time i mean we uh, we normally go about an hour, but this one's almost ninety minutes. So, oh damn, a good good long episode full of content. So cool, yeah. Thanks to everyone for the questions and for even like listening to 
me ramble on for an hour and a half. Do you, do you want to plug your YouTube channel? Oh yeah, um, it's just search for my name, uh, Lasalamat, and it's also the, the address is just youtube.com slash Lasalamat. And I've got all the comparisons on there and subscribe and uh, check my stuff out. Thumbs up if you like it. Great. Well, thanks, dude. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you, man. Take care. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Two Notes Audio Engineering. Two Notes is a leader in the market for Morbox, Cabinet, and Mic Simulators. Gone are the days of having ISO rooms or having to record an amp at ear-bleeding volumes to capture that magic tone. The Torpedo Live, Reload, and Studio allow you to crank your amp up as loud as you want, but record silently. Check out www.2-notes.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit mailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.